Awesome. So I have a question for you all. How many people do you think a person can connect with? How many friends could someone actually have? <laughs> Two. <laughs> As we learned a couple of weeks ago, according to the ancient philosopher Aristotle, the number's not infinite, right? Aristotle said a friend to all is a friend to none. So you can't be friends with everyone. Nobody could. Relationships are a limited resource. But like how limited exactly? Robin Dunbar is a British anthropologist and an evolutionary psychologist who is well known in academic circles that focus on the science behind friendship. Because he's the namesake of what's come to be known as Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number is based in, in evolutionary science and anthropology. It comes from his theory that was proposed almost 30 years ago and has been refined through the decades since. And the theory was connected to work that was being done already around what's called the social brain where Dunbar and these other researchers have looked at the brain size and structure of different primates, different animals, and considered how their brains correlated with the complexity of their social world, okay? So essentially, researchers discovered there's like a limit on how complicated a social system any given species can have based on the size of the neocortex in the brain of that animal. Okay, the neocortex is the part of the brain associated with cognition and language. And what Dunbar and others discovered was that animals who had more neocortex in their brain, they were able to maintain more social connections. Those animals could have more friends. So looking at this data on various animals and their brains, as well as like the size of human groups throughout history and how human brains are structured, Robin Dunbar and his associates came up with a number, Dunbar's number, that is supposed to indicate the amount of stable relationships a human being can generally have at any one time. It's uh, not just people you like vaguely know or recognize, but people you could have like a meaningful relationship with in some way. So any guesses what Dunbar's number might be. Anyone know? Anyone guess? 500. Okay, we got 500. Whittier, what do you think? 58. Okay, a range here. Anyone else want to throw out a number? 13. Okay, and Amanda? Four. All right. We have like quite a range there. And I would say... It's kind of an average of all of those numbers. The, the answer for Dunbar's number is 150. Okay, but, but there's more to say about that that we'll get to, okay? Now Dunbar himself is clear this number is really an average, okay? It's more like, there's more like a range depending on personality and setting. So some folks are fine with the relational network of only 100. Other people who are like particularly extroverted might go up to like a couple hundred and be fine. But on the whole, most of us peak around 150. That's what Dunbar would say. At any given time, we could have about 150 people 
that we feel positively connected to. 150 people we might call some version a friend. Well, I'm starting us off this morning talking about this number of friends that scientists theorize our brains can handle because this is the second conversation we're having in our fall series I'm calling Friendship Matters. Okay, and in this series, we're exploring the role that friendship plays in our lives generally, including our spiritual journeys. Scientists and doctors have confirmed what spiritual teachers, what our sacred texts have known for generations. It is not good for humans to be alone. Having a rich social life brings with it all kinds of physical benefits, the science tells us. It correlates with lower blood pressure, stronger immune response, lower rates of depression, substance abuse, and overall life expectancy. But what does it mean to have a rich social life? Is it just making sure you know at least 150 people that you can reasonably say you, uh, you can identify them? What is important about those relationships? What makes relationships one you might actually call friendship? Well, it turns out that the theory behind Dunbar's number is a bit more complicated and I think more helpful than just the headline number demonstrates. In fact, Dunbar's number is really a series of numbers. Numbers arranged in concentric circles, which I'm going to show you now, okay? I'll hand these out and you guys can pass them around. All right. So Dunbar's number is actually one of many. And decades of social research in the last 30 years have seemed to confirm um, that these are actually, these kind of, this set of numbers is actually quite common across people groups and settings. Because the truth is we don't just have a set of 150 relationships that are all the same. And that's maybe why we had a number of different kinds of numbers offered. I think in some way I would say all of you are right if you look at this, this, the map, right? Our connection to the people we live with or enjoy hanging out with on a weekend is going to be very different than that work acquaintance that we chat with occasionally, right? And this kind of graphic shows that a bit more. It turns out that the famous Dunbar's number of 150 is really like one circle of several. It's the circle in which he would say about two-thirds of those people are what you'd call casual friends, the kind of folks you might invite to your wedding or your funeral, but might not interact with very regularly. And inside that broad circle of 150, there's a subset that's about a third of that size. That's about 50 people he would say you consider good friends, okay? Those are the people pre-COVID, if you were throwing a backyard barbecue, you might invite, okay? Special birthday celebration, these are your like most commonly relating to 50 people. And then within that crew, there's another subset, one that Dunbar calls the best friends. That's generally closer to around 15 people, okay? Each of these, it's like a ratio of like a third, right? We go from 150 to 50 to 15 that are like your main social companions, people you're most likely to hang out with on a weekend. 
or call when you're in need of some encouragement. These can also be family members, okay? So those people with bigger families, a lot of their kin take up a lot of these relational spots, right? People who, who don't have a lot of family, um, don't have a lot of extended family, or people pe don't have kids yet, they may have more space for non-kin relationships, okay? But all of them kind of are part of the, the social landscape, right? So then we have those 15, what Dunbar calls the close friends, and then most of us have somewhere around five people in the category of our very closest friends. The people who are most likely to like drop everything and be there for us when the world falls apart. And then perhaps in that most innermost circle of intimacy where you see it says like 1.5 intimates, that's the romantic partnership or core platonic friendship that some of us might have right in the middle with us. So if you look at the broader diagram, you also see that Dunbar proposes there are outer rings beyond the 150 as well. So this model theorizes that our 150 casual friendships exist within like 500 folks you might consider some sort of acquaintance, 1,500 for whom you could recognize their name, and potentially a full 5,000 for whom you might remember their face. You might recognize that you've seen them. Right? And when we take like Facebook into consideration, I think you might think about how the reality of some of us might have a thousand Facebook friends, right? But probably it's a much smaller group that we actually really know much about them on a regular basis, right? And we're really interacting. So when you see the full spectrum from the potential of 5,000 faces you know to the main person you spend your time with, you see a lot of layers, right, of relationships that make up a social world. Friendship, it seems, comes in many degrees. In the life of Jesus, there's an interesting story that appears in three of the four Gospels and comes at a critical turning point in the narrative as things begin to escalate and Jesus seems more fixed on the end he senses is coming. The story is of a strange encounter that Jesus brings three people along for. Not long after one of them, Peter, has declared that he believes Jesus to be the Messiah, God's anointed one, who has come to bring liberation. So here's how this story is shared by Matthew in chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, there's a lot going on in this story. I'm not going to get into most of it, including, like, the whole amazing, like, can I build some shelters for these 
amazing people who are here right now. <laughs> like that's a whole thing, but we're not going to go there. I do want to focus on right now the question of who's a part of this moment? Who is a part of this moment? Clearly, this is meant to be a time of significant revelation. Something important is being disclosed about Jesus to certain people. Jesus' identity as particularly connected in a mysterious way to the divine and what God has been doing through the people of Israel, through characters like Moses and Elijah, that is being clarified in this moment. And it's happening at a time when Jesus is like kind of a big deal. Like a lot of people are showing up to hear him speak. Thousands of people throughout Israel know who he is. So this like supernatural light show with like Elijah and Moses showing up, like if they wanted to really make a big splash, like they could do that pretty publicly and it would go viral, right? It would be a big moment. But that's not what Jesus seems to want on that day on the mountain. This is a very private moment. He seems to be very intentional about that privacy. Most of us, when we think of Jesus's band of people, if we're going to think of a number, the number we often think of is 12, right? And that's for good reason. Jesus does call this particular circle of disciples around himself, these 12 young men whom he invests the bulk of his time and energy into during the three or so years of his ministry. He's eating with them. He's traveling with them. He's preaching and healing with them in his midst. But like the concentric circles of Dunbar's number, the 12 is just one layer of Jesus's social world. Beyond the 12, there are larger circles. At one point, Jesus has this group of followers that he's trained and he sends them out to like try their hands at ministry in his name and the gospel of Luke records that number at 72. At one point he sends out 12 but then he goes and sends out 72. So that's another broader circle. Beyond the 72 there are probably various rings of people who are connecting with Jesus, people who welcomed him in the towns he went to, people who funded him, people who housed him. These are probably like his crew of about 150, right? And then there's the people who show up, the crowds of thousands to hear him preach. We have the 12, but we also have more layers. We probably also have some folks who aren't a part of the 12, but seem to be intimately connected with Jesus. A few others like maybe Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Mary Magdalene. They're named as people who seem to be kind of part of more of one of the inner circles. And then within the 12, there's these three, Peter, James, John. They show up in important places. They seem to be people Jesus uniquely trusts people he wants to reveal more of himself to in a particular way. He might not be ready for everyone, for the masses, to understand his special connection to God, but he wants these three to know something of it. So the transfiguration on the mountain, that's not the only moment that we see Jesus pull aside these, these three people. When he's called to the home of Jairus, the leader of a synagogue whose daughter has recently died, he invites just these three to accompany him to that room where he raises her from the dead and then tells them again, keep it to yourselves. And then there's most heartbreakingly, 
towards the climax of the story, on his most difficult night, knowing the betrayal that was happening in his midst and the tragic but necessary torture and death he sensed was coming, he begged these three alone to keep him company in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pulling Peter, James, and John aside, he once again made an intimate disclosure. My soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death, he told them. Something he did not share with anyone else. The time in the garden ended up being a pretty disappointing encounter. Those friends couldn't actually keep themselves awake, as Jesus asked. But Jesus' trust of them, his willingness to open himself up to them, to be vulnerable with them, I believe is intended to be a model to all of us, that we too need layers of relationships in our lives. Particularly, we need safe, robust layers towards the center, with people we can reveal our inner selves to, and ask them to stand watch with us in the depth of night when our souls are grieved, even to the point of death. So what distinguishes those in the outer circles from those we call on in the night? How do we nurture this set of concentric circles, particularly the inner ones, the 50, the 15, the 5? I think Robin Dunbar and Jesus himself Amongst a number of things we could talk about, I think they would likely answer the question with, with one as, as a core piece. And that core component is time. What puts someone in a closer circle to us isn't simply the people we think have the best profile picks or the highest IQ or like the most winning personalities. If you just listed your 150, it's not just like the stellar, most popular people that are going to be the most likely to be your core, right? What distinguishes the 5 from the 15, from the 50, from the 150, or for Jesus, you might say the 3, the 12, the 72, is the amount of time we spend connecting with those people. Time together is the resource that makes the biggest difference in moving a relationship from acquaintance to casual friend to close friend. Friendships don't just happen. Friendships take time. Again, social scientists have done a lot of work to figure out why people become friends with certain people over others, why maybe people move that journey from going to acquaintance to close friend. And there are a number of factors, definitely. Personality, shared interest, similar background experience. All of those make a difference in kind of like who you click with, who you want to spend time with. But the investment in time is really key to moving into the closer circle. Or when there's less time to distribute, because life has gotten in the way, things have changed, you've had a baby, whatever, the lack of time is often the main reason people might move out a tier or two in our social structure. Many of us have seen this in our own lives if we think about it, right? A lot of us have been through like some phases of life at this point, right? So maybe the 20s was an era where we cultivated a lot of friendships. And those circles also probably changed somewhat quickly 
as we, you know, moved for school, for new jobs, got, you know, went to different places or our friends went to different places. In your 20s, generally, there's a lot of social upheaval. Okay, and so uh, Dunbar calls you have a high churn rate. People move through the cycles, up and down, kind of into your circle and out fairly quickly. But by the 30s, things kind of start to stabilize often. The churn rate slows, the sociologists say. If we're partnered, that starts to take up a part of our social world. They actually say, once you get married, that's two, two friends that you've demoted from an inner circle to an outer one, right? If you have kids, even more so. So some say the 30s is the decade where friendships come to die because as people transition to family life, they have less relational space for those who aren't in their household. But the reality is our social worlds just shift as life shifts regularly. It's not bad in and of itself. It's just real. It's part of living. But it might be helpful for us to be mindful of, and particularly, I think, in seasons of transition, to pay attention to how robust those inner circles are. What are we doing to maintain those inner layers in ways that are going to be um, helpful for us, are, gonna, are going to be the, the nurturing source we need? How are we making choices about our limited resources of time to foster friendships that are going to be sustaining? Jeff Hall is a researcher who wanted to quantify the actual amount of time it takes to move from an outer circle to an inner one. And after a number of studies, he came up with some predictions, which Dunbar and his team seemed to validate. According to Hall, it can take around 50 hours together for a relationship to move from acquaintance to casual friendship. And then around 100 hours for you to call someone like a genuine friend, maybe move them to your circle of, of 50. And then at least 200 hours together to move towards kind of the best friend sphere. So all of us are busy. We all only have so much time to distribute. But what a lot of this research shows is that how we choose to spend our time and with whom does make a real impact on the depth and strength of our relational world. This pandemic has upended so many things. One for sure has been all of our social networks. We survived many months in which our social contact was forcibly restricted. Some of us transitioned easily to maintaining social contact virtually, but some found it a real struggle. Likely all of us have had our circles of relationships strained and challenged in different ways. We might struggle to know who to put in what circle at this point. Can we even call someone a friend if we haven't really hung out with them since the pandemic? Even now, different ones of us are in different places in our comfort and ability to experience meaningful connection. And I think we have to just honor that and recognize, give ourselves grace and one another grace. It's going to take time to recalibrate and rebuild our rings of relationships. Clocking 50 to 100 to 200 hours of connection with other people we don't live with, often that, that doesn't happen quickly. It takes patience and effort and time. Now, I'm naming all of this heady social science-y stuff that I find interesting. Hopefully, you find it interesting to some degree. But I also want to name that there are, of course, limits to this use, the usefulness of all that when we try to apply what science says in general, kind of on the macro level, about how human, human habits and trends to our actual relational lives. 
okay? Things break down a little bit on the micro level. The goal here is not to say because you haven't spent a couple hundred hours with someone, you're not allowed to call them a best friend, right? It's also not to tell you that you, 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 know, you already have 15 in your best friend circle, so you can't take anymore. Or you're not going to accept that dinner I invite because it's not from one of your inner five, right? No. The goal is not to create bounded sets of exclusion that keep us from one another or to create some sort of hierarchy of value around our different relationships. I think the models are more helpful just to help us recognize like what naturally we do and how we live and that our social worlds actually, rather than being bounded sets, I think the model helps us point us to a direction to see our social worlds as more like centered sets. We have the most vibrant connections with those who are going in the same direction as us, who are called to the same things, who are putting their energy in the same places, whose lives are centered in the same things. And that nurturing those connections while we gather around whatever that is can really bring depth and satisfaction to our lives. All right? So when I think about this whole view of friendship in circles and put it together with what we are doing here at Haven on a Sunday morning, I personally find it helpful and hopeful to think about because my hope is that we, as we invest time here together, this is a place where at least some of our friendship needs are being met. Okay, these hours spent worshiping together, learning together, building, trying to rebuild after COVID and it's, it's in fits and starts, but we're working on it. This different kind of spiritual community that's safe and diverse and Jesus-centered all of those hours are also helping us grow in our investment in each other in ways that help fill out some of our friendship circle needs. Maybe recognizing that might encourage us to be a bit more intentional with one another. Perhaps extend an invitation to grab coffee afterwards or send a text to check in on someone during the week because we want to keep one another's friendship circles satisfying and full and we recognize we need them ourselves. Of course, we're not all going to be one another's best friends, and that's okay, and it's natural. None of us have enough bandwidth for that many best friends. Jesus did not have enough bandwidth for that many best friends. But I do hope that as we continue to gather, to connect, to build spiritual community, we'll continue to cultivate relationships with one another that are life-giving, and meaningful and find that a lot of these people are in our ring of 50 and hopefully a few might be in our 15 maybe even eventually our inner five because the benefits of investing in one another over time the benefits of cultivating deep sustained relationships that can see us through our darkest nights the benefits of letting friendship grow through the years that has the power to sustain. That, I believe, is what scripture imagined when it told us it was not good for humans to be alone. That, I believe, is what Jesus called us to when he called spiritual community to embody the kingdom of God. That was what he hoped for when he said, when two or more of you are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of you. We, in friendship with one another, have the capacity to embody 
the divine presence, the divine presence that the Christian tradition teaches as God is actually a friendship relationship. That is what the Trinity embodies. More than one being in relationship, in loving relationship with one another. We have the capacity to be the presence of the divine for one another. We have the capacity to make the love of the divine manifest as we embody that love for each other and for other people in our lives that God has gifted us with. Amen? Amen. And that finally brings us to the story I want us to end with today. A story from folks in our community of what this can look like when friendship is given the gift and investment of real time. Brent, Mari, John, and Kim, they have a unique relationship. Y'all can come up. They embody something I think is actually very rare, particularly in our hyper-urban, transient Bay Area culture. A deep friendship that has lasted for decades. You don't have to know them very well to know that their friendship with one another is a powerful force in each of their lives. It's clearly been a gift to each of them one that I personally find helpful, hopeful, and inspiring. And so I thought throughout this series, something I'd like to do besides just me speaking to you is have the opportunity to hear from some different folks in our community some different stories around what friendship can look like. And not all our friendships are going to be the same. Relationships like people are unique, but I think there are things we can learn from each other as we hear stories from one another's friendship lives. And so today... I've asked them to come and share a bit of their story. So we're going to do this interview style. I've got some questions, and they're going to take turns answering them, okay? All right, you guys ready for this? So if you want to take the mic off, and I think, can you just turn up mic two a little bit on the mixer so we make sure? Let's do a sound check real quick to make sure you guys are coming through. Okay. Um, yeah, the, yep, that, that's fine. Just a couple notches. Okay. Yeah, that sounds Hello. good. All right, <laughs> so they're going to, you guys can share that mic. That sound good? All right. Sure. Um, so first off, tell us, how long have you all been friends? Tell us a story of how you've met and how, a little bit about how your friendship has changed <laughs> over time. All right. Um, 30 years ago, I had met Mari, and I think Kim had met John, but that was it. Um, each of us at that time, about 30 years ago, each of us individually moved to San Francisco. And... I know for me, when I moved to San Francisco, I met a lot of new people. And I met Kim Miller, I met John DeWitt. Um, I would say at that time, I didn't know that Kim and John, it, how close they were. I didn't know if they were dating or anything because at that time we weren't really friends. We were, as your diagram indicates, we were acquaintances. I knew how they could handle a Frisbee or a volleyball, but I knew very little else about them. Um, and at the same time, they would have met Mari too. Um, 20 years ago, give or take, maybe 25 for you guys and 20 for me and Mari, um, we moved to the peninsula, and it turns out we all joined the same church. Um, they were married. We were married <laughs> by that time. Um, and that's where we got to know each other better. We became friends. We bonded. We joined the church. We also joined a home group, the same home group together. Um, so I would say we bonded over eating meals together, praying together, things like that. Um, a couple years after that, our church branched off and started a new ch church in San Bruno. 
um, we started a home group together, and that's where we really got to know each other. We really bonded over planning together, leading together, hosting, cooking, things like that. We really got to know a lot. Um, at that point, I would say give a lot of credit to Kim. She initiated a lot of friendship. Um, we all had young kids at that time, so pretty soon the kids were doing things together and spending time. Um, and it was really helpful. Um, it was a good deal for the Jensen's because the DeWitt kids are slightly older, so they were <laughs> the leaders in the group. Um, I would say the DeWitt's oldest child was, child was like a big cousin to our kids. Um, our kids really liked the DeWitt's. That made me happy, and that really helped our friendship. Um, eventually, we did more and more together, playtimes, picnics, shopping trips, even uh, camping or traveling together. Awesome. So what have been some highlights of your life together? All right. So highlights of our life together with the Jensen for me are times talking and hanging out with them. And that could be anywhere um, from times talking and hanging out at their dining table, our dining table, our friend Lorraine's table. Um, we have family in Hawaii, so that's in Hawaii after home group um, at birthday, graduation celebrations and in ordinary moments of life. And I think uh, another highlight that's I treasure are the times together eating, swimming, hiking, and hanging out in Hawaii. Often the backdrop for me would be um, include painful, intensely stressful time with my family of origin. And so the juxtaposition of time with the Jensen's with acceptance, laughter, and peace helped me have hope and helped me to receive God's care. And um, the times I've been challenged most um, are when I was afraid of losing my children um, with medical emergencies at Penn and at Berkeley, emergency room visits with a JNA tumor and surgeries. And Mari and Brent have walked by our side and prayed with us, prayed for us, listened and helped us. In those most difficult times, they've been there for us, cared for our hearts, been present with us, and brought us meals and more. Um, and when John and I started to realize that the church that we'd been, that had been home for us for two plus decades and where we had raised our children was not able to embrace and celebrate our whole family, Mari and Brent helped us as I cried and despaired and mourned losing church family and helped us with praying, reading, learning, and helped us to find haven. I wish I could express how much Mari and Brent have helped me to see God and to experience God's care and support through them, how they've helped me to believe and to experience that God stays with me and my family, especially in the darkest, scariest, bleakest times and the times when the sun is shining down on me. For me, the highlights are what Kim mentioned, all the things that Kim mentioned. In addition to the fun things that she mentioned, I think the highlights for me are um, just the everyday things that we've done together. You know, when my kids were young and I was a younger mom, and it was sometimes very lonely and isolating. And I have to say that just the visits, Kim and I did a lot of Costco, Target, Trader Joe's, Costco, Target, Trader Joe's over and over hundreds of times. And that is what uh, one of the highlights for me. But similar to Kim, I think the, the things that deepened the friendship for me was, or were during the times of most pain, grief, sorrow, worry. Um, we also, you know, had our times where we really needed them and to walk by us or s s sit through the night, I think, like you said. You know, when we lost Brent's mom, 
and then we lost my dad, and then we had some other losses and worries. They were there. Um, they took care of my children. That was probably the most important to me, that people stood by us and took care of my kids. Um, for that, I'll be forever thankful. I'm going to cry too. Okay, I think I'll stop there. <laughs> Amazing. Those are some powerful highlights. So where have you been challenged, and how do you think that has shaped your friendship? Is that the right one? Yeah. Oh, I think that's what we both answered in the, okay. in the hard times. Yeah, yes. the hard you the both, challenges. You already answered yeah, that Yeah, the yes. hard times okay. were probably the challenges. But really, I think significantly, that's where it deepens, yeah. if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. So how has your friendship contributed to your experience, would you say, of Jesus-centered faith? So one of Kim and my goals is to live out a Jesus-centered faith. And um, we were looking at our uh, lives and thinking, well, gosh, Jesus talks a lot about finances. And what does he say about his finances and parables and other words? And I've realized Brent's got a lot of history in the uh, financial industry. And so Kim and I said, well, Brent, Mari, will you guys look at our budget and our spending and say, you know, what does God say about that? What do you guys say? And so... Um, my, my brother was fascinated that I would even think about talking to somebody else about our finances. But Brent and Mari, I, I trust them, and I wanted to get their input, and I wanted to see what they could see from uh, how we were spending money. Was it really reflecting what Jesus said? And they took us seriously. They looked at it. We got together in a couple weeks after I asked him, and it was a really great discussion, and um, I think it really grew our friendship a lot. So it was neat that we got a chance to express vulnerability and openness and talk about that. Um, I think, as, as President mentioned, we've been in home group together for over 20 years, and we've got to grow deep respect for each other and uh, each other's faith. We've been in trying to figure out how to live out. What does Jesus say for us each day? Uh, we've been Bible studies together. We've discussed and argued about Bible. What's the passage say? We've acted them out. Is, it, does this, is this what it means? Is that what it means? And we've learned from each other's experiences and perspectives. And be, you know, as Kim and Mari both said, because we've invested time in each other, they were gents have been there to care for us when we've been in hard spots and really needed their help. And I think Brent and Mari's experience and love and, and care for their QT friends was really important for me in my growth and development over time as well. And I guess I would ask Dad, Leah, thank you so much for letting us do this because Yesterday we sat down and, and as we were preparing, it's just amazing to think back of the gift that God's given us in our friends. So thank you. I do want to say too that life isn't always predictable. Life brings a lot of curveballs. And what do we do when we have big questions? What do we do when somebody dies and we didn't expect it? What do we do when somebody's sick and we didn't expect it? What do we do when our child comes out as queer and how do we wrestle with that? And we have come together um, several times to pray together, to support each other, listen to each other, to read the Bible, to read books, and to try to figure things out. And, and we felt a lot of support from the duets during those times. Awesome. So beautiful. All right, final question. What makes your friendship work? And what do you think allows it to grow? Yeah. I thought of four things for this. Um, the first thing I thought of was acceptance. Th there's a, you know, we all have quirks among the whole families. And everybody has their quirks and imperfections and strangeness. And I think that allowing one another to be accepted despite or with those 
is is helpful. The next thing is you know the trust that is built over time that allows you to grow and challenge one another. Maybe out of some of those quirks, but regardless, um, just the ability to grow and change. Um, and that's in the context of accountability and trust. Um, the third thing I think is just there's room to love others. <laughs> I, I hope that it doesn't ever feel like a bounded set to anyone. I, you know, um, I think we tend to sit together because we're happy together but it's not intended to be a closed, exclusive thing. And we, we do have another best friend that um, is like our family. And when we all became friends, she was enveloped into the DeWitt's family and they she did the same with them. And now she's their auntie is to their kids. And so there's always, I think in a healthy relationship, there is room, there's, I mean, limited time, but there's room for growth and expansion. And just the last thing is that I realized um, it would help friendships continue is when we can truly want the best for one another when we could truly want them to be happy or uh, just when we want the best for them even if we have to put aside envy or jealousy or struggles whatever we have inside us on our flesh um, truly if, if we could do that for one another we our friendship can grow I hope that I can have that with some of you all too any other words? All right, amazing. Can we give a round of applause? Thank you for sharing so beautifully, so vulnerably.